welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hello, everyone. I'm Kelly Deutsch, and I have with me today here Bruce Davis. Um, and we're going to have a conversation about the contemplative life and uh, Bruce's story. Uh, Bruce is an author as well as a spiritual and retreat leader. Uh, he's the head of one of the top 10 retreat centers in the world and has written over nine books on the spiritual and contemplative life, including two, or is it three on St. Francis? Uh, two. Two on St. Francis. Um, and another is, uh, would you say your most popular one is Monastery Without Walls? It's one of them, right? Yeah, yeah. So Bruce and I connected and we're excited to have a conversation and share with all of you as well a bit of uh, the world of silence, contemplative life, the divine. Um, and I'd love to hear some about St. Francis too. So Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to start us off, would you mind sharing a little bit about a little bit about your story? Like, what was it that prepared you to become a retreat leader? Like, you don't just become a retreat leader of one of the top ten <laughs> centers in the world <laughs> out of the blue. Um, where did all that begin? Well, it's a long story, but briefly, in the 1960s, I was involved in the anti-war movement, you know, the anti-Vietnam, and. Um, Long story short, I got in trouble. I was a bunch of defendants, you know, and um, I, what I discovered was you can't change the world unless we change ourselves. Mm. And that was a deep lesson because we had to get along. There was a mm -hmm. leader of the black movement, the women's movement, the faculty. Uh, there was a Puerto Rican. There was a whole group of us that were uh, doing this uh, process together. And... Um, we were as crazy as the people we were trying to change, you know? And so in those days, all these new therapies were coming out. Mm -hmm. Gestalt therapy, primal therapy, rebirthing, transactional analysis. And so after my undergraduate study, I uh, went to graduate school to become a psychologist. Mm. And I, I got a PhD in psychology, learning all these therapies. And then I was at an opening seminar one night and there was a woman in our seminar who was a shaman. And in those days, I didn't know what a shaman was. And that night, I, I was sleeping, and she came and sat on the end of my bed in my dream. And I woke up quite startled. And the next morning, I went to see her. And before I said anything, she said, do you remember me coming to you last night? And I've been expecting you. And um, that started a four-year relationship that she would come into my dreams and teach me. Wow. And I, I come from a non-religious family. I was raised Jewish. And um, just it was, religion was doing good behavior, good things, you know. Hmm. There was nothing spiritual about it. But um, 
And then in graduate school, I discovered all these feelings, you know, early childhood feelings and all these things. But uh, the shaman coming into my dreams, she would take me to the other side, to dream classes on the other side. And all these experiences I had with her, um, she said I was the most stubborn student she ever had. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or... <laughs> Yes, because in our culture, there's no room for any of this. Mm. You know, there's no understanding, no space for it. Mm. And um, during this time, uh, during these four years, it was very intense, beautiful time. I was finishing my doctorate, and uh, I went and lived in the Philippines for a while with the healers there. And people were healing just with the love out of their hands. And that was very powerful for me to see, very special. But after all of this, um, I'm just a normal American kid from Denver, Colorado, you know, and I was wondering, where does all of this fit in our culture? Mm. You know, there's no space for it in our culture. And um, so long story short, um, I was uh, in Europe. And the first night in Europe, I, the, the, the shaman taught me to have dreams, how to learn through dreams. I had a dream where I was in this great big valley and a bird landed on my shoulder and there was this incredible peace. And I woke up thinking about St. Francis. Now I was not raised Christian. So for me, St. Francis is a garden statue. But, uh, <laughs> but my friend said, you know, there's a place in Italy that has that feeling. It's incredible. Hmm. So in those days I was traveling around leading retreats around psychology and what I learned from the shaman. And the first time I went to Assisi, I was with 88 people from 11 different countries. Wow. And uh, we landed in Assisi and I felt like I came home. Hmm. Uh, you know, all these experiences I had had, I, they weren't in my culture or my religion or anything. And when I came to Assisi, I felt the same energy the same presence, the same peace that I learned from the shaman, and I felt like I came home. So during that time, I was finishing school, and I wrote a book called The Magical Child Within You. And it was the first book on the inner child, I'm told. You know, there was all these ideas that you discover the painful child and all the terrible things that happened to us as a kid. But nobody was talking about the innocent child, the fun mm. child, the magical child. And the shaman awakened that inside of me, you know, because I had been through primal therapy and gestalt therapy, all these different therapies and trained in analysis. But nobody was talking about what the shaman was talking about was joy, happiness, mm. love, peace, you know. And when she took me to the other side, it was a peace without, it was a peace without borders. It was just incredible. Mm. And so I wrote this book called The Magical Child Within You. And that sort of really got me started on uh, offering retreats and seminars. And then uh, I wrote another book back then called The, the uh, Heart of Healing, which was a big bestseller. And that was about a, a Course in Miracles. I don't know if you ever heard of A Course mm -hmm. in Miracles. Yeah. yeah. I was one of the first students of The Course in Miracles. When it very first came out, we had to go to Sonoma Library because there was only one copy there and read our daily lesson or take a copy of it home with us. Wow. So I wrote a book about the Course in Miracles and the teachings from the shaman and the teachings in the Philippines. And, uh, 
And then after that, I started going to CC more regularly and integrating all these things because it's in every culture. It's just, it's more difficult to find in modern Western culture. Mm -hmm. that, that's how I got started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's amazing to me how certain places will give you that profound sense of peace because almost everyone that I know that's been to Assisi has had that same experience. And I don't know if it's just the spirit of St. Francis or if it's the beautiful landscape or something else magical about that place, but there is such a, like you just feel like you breathe more deeply there. It's everything you say. I mean, we meet tourists who are walking through town and they don't know why, but they suddenly find themselves crying. Oh, wow. Frequently, because we lived in Assisi finally for 12 years. And, uh, you know, it's had millions of tourists for over 800 years, pilgrims looking for something. Mm -hmm. And all those churches and cathedrals and gardens, they now embody that yearning. Yeah. And as Americans, we don't have places like that, really. Not that, not that profound. But in Europe, there are these places. In Asia, there are some of these places. But for me, Assisi is, it was, is and was the place. We still go there. We still have a home there. Mm. And we still run retreats there. Um, and Assisi is very easy. <laughs> yeah. Are yeah. all the retreats you run mostly silent retreats, or do you have a mixture? In Assisi, it's a mixture because we're right in town. Mm. But we encourage people to keep inner silence. And we go into the monasteries and cathedrals and the back streets and just sit and enjoy the silence and just listen to our own hearts. Mm. And in Assisi, uh, it's hard to describe it. I mean, you know, it's just there's this peace there that even people who are in a lot of stress, they find another part of themselves. Mm. You know, they find a part of themselves that's underneath the stress. And there's this big space of Assisi inside each of us. Yeah, that's a lovely way yeah. of putting it. <laughs> yeah. How many of the people um, who attend your retreats are completely inexperienced in sitting in silence, the interior life? Well, we have two centers. We have one in Assisi mm -hmm. and then one in upstate California that burned down last year. I heard that. I'm sorry. Yeah, but we relocated now to Santa Barbara, and we're going to start again here in a few months. Anyway, in Santa Barbara, it's totally silent because there's no Assisi there. And then when we were up north, it was totally silent. And what was interesting, about 70% of the people that came have never meditated before and never done a retreat. <laughs> wow. They, felt, they just felt called to silence. Hmm. And there's lots of stories, but, you know, when you have a area that's dedicated to silence, at first, people feel a little bit vulnerable and uh, naked, but we tell them it's not really about not talking. It's about, it's like being in the library of your own heart. Mm. You know, you just want to sit and be and relax. And then we learned uh, through the years after all the different therapies and the whole pilgrimage and stuff, um, we teach heartfulness meditation, mm. which is letting go of our busy mind mm. and, uh, receiving the heart inside our heart mm. and to be honest with you beginners do much better at this than people who've been meditating for 20 years oh, interesting 
Yeah, because most of the people who've been meditating for 20 years are doing this mindfulness where they're watching their thoughts and they got this whole technique going on and they got this little system going on. And uh, it's difficult for them to get out of their system and just be and just receive peace. Isn't and that, let me tell you another funny story. The most difficult people to have on retreat in Assisi are ministers. <laughs> oh, interesting. Why is that? Because they're so tied up into all the stories and the Bible and all this other stuff. And when people just come off the streets, they're not so tied up to be performing as a minister, you know? Mm. And they just come in and be. And we've had priests come to Assisi and they say, you know, just between you and me, how do you pray? And they say, what do you mean, how do you pray? And they said, well, we went to seminary and everything. I mean, we're Catholic priests. But and we say all the things we're supposed to say, but honestly, how do you pray? And I tell them, uh, we listen, it's not about talking, and we listen, and then we begin hearing the in the silence that God is listening with us, mm. yeah. And, and in that space, uh, the prayer begins to take form, whatever it is. Yeah. There's no techniques, really. There's no training. Isn't that remarkable? I've had priest friends tell me the same thing, you know, that they're like, I thought I knew how to pray, <laughs> you know, and then somebody taught them like Ignatian meditation or like they learned something of a more contemplative nature and they're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, so that's true for meditation or prayer or a lot of spiritual things. People learn techniques, but there is no technique really that's so important. Mm -hmm. And she's having permission for a uh, simple piece. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's hard. I find the techniques sometimes are like our security blanket until we're ready to let go into that silence, you know, that it, in theory, can be our training wheels to help us transition yeah. to the silence um, and just being stillness, receiving. The, the problem is we lived in the country outside of Assisi on a farm, and that was our silent retreat house. Mm. Um, and then when we came back to America after being gone so long, you could feel that in America, uh, we're hyped up. We don't even know it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, can't think, I can't think of a better word. You know, we're just uptight. We're just hyped up, you know. And when we came back, there's all these alerts on TV and, you know, this energy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really intense. It's, too, it's sad. Yeah. yeah. I was just reading in a book and I can't remember the statistic exactly. It was either that 75% of Americans are sympathetic dominant, you know, so like the fight flight, or it was Americans are in sympathetic 75% of the time, <laughs> you know, either one, I believe, you know, that we just I, have that buzzy energy that we can't. I, I read it. I read it. I read the article similar to this. It said a normal American has 78,000 thoughts a day. And I'm, and my God, I'm lucky to have 10 or 15 thoughts a day. <laughs> <laughs> Which, my gosh, most people would be jealous of you because there is such a frenetic energy. Um, <laughs> I remember uh, one person that I had in spiritual direction, she had um, studied art over in Florence in Italy. Right, right. And she said it was just, it took her an entire year to just slow down, you know, she would always be like, okay, ready to go, time to start the stuff and, you know, start projects. And her Italian friends would be like, cool, calma, you know, like just take a breather, first a bit of coffee, then we'll have a cigarette and then 
we'll get started. You know, there's just a rhythm that's much more tranquilo, as they say, <laughs> like just much Gee, more calm, calm. And um, yeah, and it's, it's just different in the U.S. Yes, I think the work you're doing is really important that people need to understand being a contemplative is really being normal. Mm. You know, it's mm -hmm. slowing down, breathing. Uh, it's getting out of this hyper, this tense, this tense realm mm -hmm. and coming back to earth. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's, I'm intrigued that you also have you know, this psychology degree, because that's something that I find absolutely fascinating is that intersection between psychology, neurobiology, and the spiritual life, because most spiritual practices are essentially trying to get you to be back in that parasympathetic state, you know, or, you know, they call it the rest and digest, but it's really just our default mode of, I'm just present, I'm here, calm in my body. And in Western culture, where it's so buzzy, um, it, it takes a lot of spiritual practice to... Yeah, the problem in psychology, well, now psychology is so much about drugs. Mm. But even when it's about feelings, it doesn't really understand that our mental realms is just the surface of our awareness. Mm. All the thinking and all the feeling, it's like the waves on the ocean. Mm. And um, our spirituality is the ocean. Mm. And find this big vastness inside. And so... We spend, as a psychologist or a therapist, we spend all this time thinking and feeling and understanding our feelings and talking about our feelings and going back to old feelings. But that is still just the surface of our awareness. It's just the waves. And most people, they spend their entire lives trying to be comfortable in the waves, and they're never really comfortable until they come into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And here we're comfortable. Mm -hmm. So what happens in psychology and in my in culture, we're separate from our ocean of awareness, which also makes us separate from our spirituality. Most people, they have faith in God, but when you know the ocean, it's not a matter of faith. You know God. You know, you experience it directly. It's inside of us. And so um, I don't really practice as a psychologist because we're much more than our thoughts and our feelings. That's just the surface. That's just the language to get through this every day. But underneath the waves is an entire ocean of who we are. Mm, mm -hmm. And uh, most, and even a lot of religions or meditation techniques, they're still in the waves. They're not teaching the ocean. Mm. People are not directly experiencing this big peace. And that's why we lived and we keep going back to Assisi, Italy. He brought the church back to the ocean, mm. to nature, to the feminine, to... Uh, the heart, you know, all these are part of the ocean of spirituality. And so, um, unfortunately, my field of psychology is really limited. Even the inner child work, now it's normal. When I was doing this, it was not normal. You know, it's just beginning. But even the inner child work, that it's still the waves. That's our personality, our thoughts, our feelings. It's, it's our joy. But underneath the inner child is a great big heart, and it includes the inner child. It includes our innocence, a profound peace, you know, love. People have their own experience. There's coming home inside. Uh, it's a mountain of beingness. And um, the inner child is just one door into the heart. 
there are many doors into the heart yeah. and the journey the journey for me is opening the doors in the heart and receiving the heart and unfortunately most of meditation is about observing and it's not about receiving mm. and we want to read uh, I don't want just want to observe all my thoughts. I tease people that meditation for most people is 20 minutes thinking about not thinking. <laughs> That's not really that much fun, you know, it's yeah. boring. Yeah. Meditation is going underneath our thoughts and receiving our deep heart, mm. receiving peace here. And then the thoughts naturally fade away. And you're not involved in the waves, the surface of our mental, of our mental energy. There's something much more profound that is present. Hmm. And you can call you can call it what you want to call it: our spiritual self, God, Christ, Buddha. <laughs> we don't. I, we never discuss religion because it's not really about the words. Hmm. It's about the love. It's about the heart, the experience. Hmm. I wonder. That sounds like a a good way to distinguish between meditation as prayer versus meditation as mindfulness you know one is that more like okay i'm trying to not think my thoughts like i'm just observing just observe just just observe you know and you're training your brain to do that versus meditation as prayer to me has always been about some sort of relationship with whatever that is the divine spark love being existence but there is that that inner this is my favorite in an interior stance, you know, I like to call it a Marian stance, like, um, like Mary received <laughs> the divine spark as well. And that's, that's really, I think what we're trying to achieve. And that's not even the right word. <laughs> that's, that's a Westernism popping out achievement, but really trying to relax into is perhaps a better way of putting it. Yeah, that's beautiful said. It's like centering prayer. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, most meditation, most prayer in the West for me is still too mental. Hmm. You know, we're exercising our mental body. And what I learned from St. Francis and also spending time in India and in Hindu and Buddhist cultures is the uh, importance of emptiness. Hmm. Um, and in, the, in, the, in, the, in our emptiness, not only does our mental worlds get smaller and not so on top of us you know we're not so loaded down emptiness frees us of our mental worlds we get another perspective of our personality but more important when we're in our emptiness the heart of our awareness naturally comes forward in our awareness mm. now most people their hearts have been stomped upon you know all the noise and trucks and trauma of life is like on top of their poor little heart but in uh, our emptiness all that is unloaded mm. and we find this big space inside mm. and then naturally the heart of our awareness comes forward and in the heart of our awareness um, meditation naturally happens mm. and there are no thinking it's just you're just being in the heart of your awareness and prayer naturally happens again there's not so much to pray about when you have emptiness because everything is present right you know? Isn't that such an interesting paradox that in emptiness, you have the most profound presence? Right. And so after living in other cultures, even with the Italian farmers in the countryside, 
they're much more peaceful than our farmers, you know. They can sit around the entire afternoon and just have a coffee and just be there on the farm. We had a farm too next door, these old farmers. And they have emptiness. They were really poor people, simple people, but they had everything. Mm. And in our culture, we now live in a wealthy community in California and people have everything, but they don't have emptiness. Mm. And you can feel it, you know, uh, they're missing something. And so that was a big gift of St. Francis. And a lot of people don't really understand what lady poverty is about. I was just going to ask that. I was like, do you think that was Francis's word for emptiness was lady poverty? Yeah. So he would sit in his cave and there's many caves on mountaintops all over Italy, middle of Italy. Maybe you visit some of them and he would just sit in the silence, but he was not alone because he was with lady poverty. And what lady poverty is, is profound beauty of sitting in emptiness. And she's always giving, always providing. And the church thinks poverty is about being poor and having nothing and, you know, giving everything away. It's about materialism, but it's not about materialism at all. Poverty is about lady poverty. And, uh, she gives you everything. Mm. And Francis being Italian and being romantic and everything, he would call her Lady Poverty, of course. Oh, right. <laughs> the troubadour right. that he was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm a lover of Lady Poverty too. Yeah. I love that um, understanding of it's, it's more of a spiritual poverty than a material poverty of just what you were talking about, the emptiness, the inner spaciousness and feeling that. And, and to me, it's been something that um, it's like a, a recognition of our utter dependence on something greater than us, you know, because that's also what material poverty forces us to do is recognize like, okay, I, I need something outside of me. Um, I suppose the flip side of spiritual poverty is that you recognize that you need something higher, but it's also somehow profoundly within. Well, that's the problem in modern culture. All the answers are outside. Mm -hmm. So we need more money or we need more God or we need more of this or more of that. And that's begin because we live on the waves of our awareness and not the ocean. And when you live more in the ocean, the answers are not outside. Yeah. Uh, the answers are inside. My shaman always taught me that all the answers to your questions are within three feet of you. <laughs> and this was before the internet. Yeah. Before there was any of that. And it was, she was trying to teach me that the answers are always right here with us inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, just as you mentioned, you know, being in such a kind of interspiritual place where you teach that core of the religions, I mean, that core, I mean, is what I and some others call mysticism, right. you know, and that, that beautiful center place where mystics of every religion will tell you like i love john of the cross you know he said dios es el centro de la anima you know it's, he didn't say so god is the center of our soul not that god is located there but he is that's that's the core of us and you can find that amongst almost any <laughs> mystics of any religion yeah i've um been involved in this community the near-death community people who have died and come back Wow. And I've had some and I've had some of my own experiences of that. Wow. And uh, it's not separate from us. It's in the core of our own heart. 
you know, this profound love, this profound connectedness. And uh, that's the, the prayer and meditation when it's, it takes us to that place. Mm. If it's not, if it's not entertaining our mental body and our, um, you know, our neediness. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we have a lot of these people used to come to us for retreats because people have an automobile accident or a heart attack and they have this profound experience. And then they come back to like, oh my God, what's going on here? You know, because they're so used to our material world and personality and everything is outside. And ultimately nothing is outside, it's all inside. And so I tell them, you don't need a heart attack to discover this place inside. You don't need an automobile accident. There's a much easier way. Just go into the silence of your heart for a few days Mm -hmm. and just be like a sponge. Yeah. Um, So we need to be a sponge in the very heart of our awareness. And then these experiences that people have on the other side, we discover it's right here now. Mm. It's with us. And, um, but emptiness is an important part of it because we're so mental in our culture and that's all a filter. Mm-hmm. It's just, it separates us from this profound light, from the grace. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you was about suffering because I feel like suffering can be one of those doors to the heart. Um, and it's perhaps the greatest draw to religion in making sense of suffering and life and all of that, but it can also be the greatest obstacle to religion or spirituality, you know, when people are like, well, what does this mean? Um, and so I'm curious what you have learned from suffering in your own life personally, um, and what role you see it playing in spirituality. Well, um, I was raised Jewish, and in Judaism, we have this old history of suffering, and it's sort of like a history of supporting you and of community, mm. and it's sort of like it's in your bones. Mm. And then after I met St. Francis, I became a Catholic. And, uh, and for me, I wasn't raised inside the church, so I have no problems with the church. Mm. <laughs> we have all these ex-Catholics coming to our retreats, you know, and uh, I'm not interested in guilt and sin and all that stuff. But what I am interested is that Francis gave the uh, cross of resurrection, which means that as you grow closer to that cross, it's resurrection. Um, And that's a big support. That's God inside our heart is offering resurrection. Mm. And then very beautiful, even the crucified Christ, only in Christianity that I know about, does God so deeply with us in our suffering in our struggles. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not into like, I feel bad about Christ was sacrificed, sacrifice and all this Christian dogma about the cross. I don't believe in any of it. The only thing that's true for me is that the crucified Christ is a symbol of this God being born and coming so deeply into the human experience mm-hmm. and being with us. We are not alone in our suffering. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's very powerful because in other religions, you know, Buddha and Hindu, Hindus are the great teachers and stuff. Um, not that I know of, did any of them come so deeply into the human experience mm-hmm. of crucifixion? Mm-hmm. And so for me, uh, those are the two gifts of Christianity. One is the resurrected Christ and the other is the crucified Christ. Hmm. <coughs> yeah. 
I think and that's, yet, oh, go ahead. As I say, and the third part is um, Western religion is missing the feminine mm. and uh, Mary is really important. Mm. I spent a whole year of my life um, seeking the feminine and uh, she talked to me every day for a whole year. And I wrote this little book, My Little Flowers. Mm. And, uh, it was the best year of my life. And what happened during that year it was a year of my divorce mm. now, I, when I was single. And it was very interesting that when I meet people, often in our profound nakedness or difficulty is a time that God is the closest to us. Mm. And so it felt like no accident that that was the year I heard that voice. Yeah. Mm. That in our profound nakedness, um, our heart is very present, which is also the heart of God. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> I feel like there's a resurgence of the feminine, or at least of a hunger for the feminine. Why do you suppose that is? Because we're way too masculine and yang. We're destroying the planet mm. with all this mental male energy. Mm. And the feminine brings us back inside to the mother to our feelings, to our heart. My wife has spent a lot of time in Hinduism and Christianity, but in Hinduism, there's not just Mary, there's all these goddesses. And each one is a different aspect of the feminine goddess. And she teaches people to come in and for an entire month from new moon to full moon to embody this goddess in your life to restore basically the feminine. Hmm. So there's Bhagala, there's Tara, there's all these aspects, there's um, Kali, there's, you know, all these aspects of the feminine and hmm. you and, and you bring them in and then you embody them. They're already part of our heart, but by taking a month from full moon to new moon, you allow this part of the goddess to come forward into your awareness. What happens is that people have emptiness, but then they fill it right back up with thinking and materialism. They don't know what to do with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Because the, even in meditation, you can have 10, 20 minutes of just not thinking, it's wonderful. But then you go right back out there and fill it up with materialism and thinking and worrying and all the stuff that we do, you know? Right. So people need to learn spiritual practice, which is receiving from the many hearts inside our, our heart. Mm -hmm. And here are a whole bunch of goddesses from Hinduism. There's Mary, there's Christ. It's, you don't need the labels, but they give, uh, they give us words. They give us a path into these different aspects of our own heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there's a big hunger for this because materialism and just being in this mental world is uh, it's just stress. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's not real. Yeah. There's some aspect of, you know, how we've been talking about the techniques of, medi of meditation are more of that masculine energy, like do, achieve, follow the rules and the structures, whereas that feminine um, kind of formlessness and unknowing, if you will, the receptivity, that's a very feminine um, kind of energy stance. Um, and that's something that I- Yeah, too much about meditation. Too much about meditation and religion, you feel guilty for not doing it right. Sure. There's so much. There's so much of this. I mean, and in almost all the religions, mm -hmm. we meet people who've been, you know, 
in all kinds of so-called spiritual communities. But after 10 or 20 years, this, you know, I always feel guilty about this part of me, or I always feel guilty about this or that, and because I wasn't doing it right, whatever the pictures are, how they're supposed to be. And uh, I think as we go into our heart, we realize that we're all human beings, mm -hmm. and we don't need to feel guilty about our personalities. We don't need to be so upset about the personalities of others. It's just our clothing of our awareness. You know, it's not who we are. And um, meditation and religion can separate us from our heart because mm. you don't want to feel guilty about anything. Yeah. You just want to uh, enjoy. Mm. It's not easy being a human being. You know, we're all doing the best we can. Mm. Mm. How does, I'm, I'm thinking in my Catholic upbringing, um, we would talk about how contemplation and action are two sides of the same coin. You know, that we can't just go away and like lose ourselves in meditation for the rest of our lives when, you know, it's like, we're also called to, you know, be present to the world that is suffering and to live our own lives. And I'm curious, um, your thoughts on that, on how those two are tied together. Like, I, I can see people being a little curious about like, okay, so you go on a silent retreat and you, you know, you're, you're heartful, you're mindful, but why not then just go back into life and fill up the emptiness with doing good things for others and social justice and working for the poor and racial equality and, you know, all the things that are important to be done. Um, how do you see those things paired or related? Uh, for me, it's quite simple. I always tell people the first step is we have to receive our hearts as deeply as we can and then express your heart. And uh, it's not, we always think you have to do something big in my life. You know, if I get to meet Kelly in a video, that's important. That's beautiful, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, life is three things, uh, meditation, receiving our heart, and service, expressing our heart, mm -hmm. and community. And don't make it complicated. Um, I had a program that we were feeding homeless people every Saturday morning for many years in downtown San Francisco. Hmm. And it was incredible how many people are living in boxes, living on the streets. And this is not India, this is downtown San Francisco. And the rule, we ran this for about 10 years, and the rule was this program, there was no meetings. We had no meetings. We were working with teenagers from one of the wealthiest high schools in the Marin County. And every week we invited whoever wanted to come, come. And we met at my house every Friday night and made 500 sandwiches. And you could bring donuts, whatever you wanted to bring. But the rule was we never had a meeting. And we fed two or 300 homeless people every weekend uh, with no meetings. And we never know how much is going to show up, but whatever showed up, we served it, we gave it out. And then my wife came along and she got us a little bit organized. We never had a table until then. We were just giving it out. And uh, she said, no, wish you could have a table, you know? You could put it all on the table and it'd be okay, you know? And she got us a little bit organized, but we still had no meetings. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I don't like meetings. I, I've been involved in organizations, but I can't go to meetings. I mean, it's a waste of time. We just practice our service and do whatever we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing that is common in, I'll at least say Catholic circles, is to talk about our call to holiness, you know, that we're called to be saints and what, whatever language you want to use. Um, but I find perhaps a more accurate or modern term for that is, is wholeness, 
instead of just holiness. And I'm curious how you would define what that is. What is wholeness? I don't know. I wrote a book called The Calling of Joy, hmm. which, is the, which is the magical child within you 30 years later. Hmm. I thought it'd be interesting to see who am I after 30 years of the magical child. And I just, the book is about that when we reach our real awareness, it's a calling to joy. Hmm. And that's what we offer in the world. That's what we offer each moment, try to offer it to each other. And that's our calling because in joy, we feel alive, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not complicated. We do the best we can. We're all human and we're called to joy. And there's always a hundred excuses. Well, I need to do this and I'm told to do that or whatever. You listen as deeply as possible inside. And that's why I learned by listening to the mother for that whole year. It's a calling mm -hmm. to joy. It's a calling to love. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, being a human being is not so easy, but we try our best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And out of that, as you listen to your deep heart, you have many, many holy experiences. You know, the angels become more real. Christ becomes more and more present. You know, there's these golden realms in Buddhism. They're all totally real. All the religions are really tapped into something very real. And most of the time we just think about it or maybe we believe in it or not. But once you get again underneath the waves of our awareness into the ocean of our awareness, all these realms are real. Mm. And you can, we can directly experience them. So we still live in the world. We have thoughts and feelings, hopefully not 78,000 thoughts, but we have thoughts and feelings. And, uh, but all these realms are with us. And then we're called to much more simplicity to enjoy these realms. You don't want to make life complicated. It's already complicated. Mm. You want to have as much simplicity as possible. And I think that's why your work is important is to return people to the contemplative path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're definitely hungry for it. Yeah, because that's where these realms are waiting for us. Mm -hmm. Bruce, as we wrap up here, what is one thing you would like to leave with our listeners? Silence. Mm. I can never have enough of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so hard to find true silence. Mm. You know, St. Francis used to send his favorite brother into the marketplace and pray. And I said, Francis, why do you go there? It's so noisy. He says, well, when I find my silence in the marketplace, I know I've really found the silence. Mm. That's true, but I still like having silence on the outside, too. <laughs> it is a much easier on-ramp. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, silence restores us. That's why we offer these silent retreats in California. And then the silence in Assisi is full of peace. So we keep offering the retreats in Assisi. You want to drink this deep well of silence inside of us. Mm-hmm. If people wanted to learn more about your retreats, either in California or Assisi, where should they go? Uh, silentstay.com. I like silent, like silent night, silentstay.com or assisiretreats.org. Okay. You know, assisiretreats.org, yeah. Wonderful. We wish everyone well. We're all in this together. We're all doing what we can do. And we pray that there's more silence in the world. And then there'll be much more heart. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing a bit of your story and um, sharing some silence with me before our call started. And um, we invite everyone listening as well to just take a moment after we close here to spend a few moments in silence and stillness. Doesn't right. have to be long, but even just a minute to be still. Yeah, we offer a free silent meditation every Sunday morning, hmm. California time. And they can find that on our website. And it just goes in this deep emptiness of pure silence. Beautiful. So people are welcome to join us. Kelly, it's beautiful to meet you. Everything yeah. good for you. Lots Thank and you. lots and lots of blessings. Lots Thank and you. lots and lots of grace for you. You're very beautiful. Everything Thank good. You. Thank <laughs> you. Blessings to you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm.